Chapter Fifteen of Isabel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Isabel, a Romance of the Northern Trail by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Fifteen. Le More Rouge and Isabel. Until late that night, Billy sat beside his campfire with the snowman. Strange and new thoughts had come to him and among these was the wondering one asking himself why he had never built a snowman before. When he went to bed he dreamed of the snowman and of little Isabel, and the little girl's laughter and happiness when she saw the curious form the dissolving snowman had taken in the heat of the fire when she awoke the following morning filled him again with those boyish visions of happiness that he had seen just ahead of him. At other times he would have told himself that he was no longer reasonable. After they had breakfasted and started on the day's journey, he laughed and talked with baby Isabel, and a dozen times in the forenoon he picked her up in his arms and carried her behind the dogs. "'We're going home,' he kept telling her over and over again. "'We're going home, down to Mama, Mama, Mama.' He emphasized that, and each time Isabel's pretty mouth formed the word Mama after him, his heart leaped exultantly. By the end of that day it had become the sweetest word in the world to him. He tried Mother, but his little comrade looked at him blankly, and he did not like it himself. Mama, 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 he said a hundred times that night beside their campfire, and before he tucked her away in her warm blankets, he said something to her about, Now I lay me down to sleep. Isabel was too tired and sleepy to comprehend much of that. Even after she was deep in slumber, and Billy sat alone smoking his pipe, he whispered that sweetest word in the world to himself, and took out the tress of shining hair and gazed at it joyously in the glow of the fire. By the end of the next day, little Isabel could say almost the whole of the prayer his own mother had taught him years and years and years ago, so far back that his vision of her was not that of a woman, but of an elusive and wonderful angel. And the fourth day at noon, she lisped the whole of it without a word of assistance from him. On the morning of the fifth day, Billy struck the gray beaver and little Isabel grew serious at the change in him. He no longer amused her, but urged the dogs along, never for an instant relaxing his vigilant quest for a sign of smoke, a trail, a blazed tree. At his heart there began to burn a suspense that was almost suffocating. In these last hours before he was to see Isabel there came the inevitable reaction within him. Gloom oppressed him, where a little while before joyous anticipation had given him hope. The one terrible thought drove out all others now. He was bringing her news of death, her husband's death, and to Isabel he knew that Dean had meant all that the world held of joy or hope, Dean and the baby. It was like a shock when he came suddenly upon the cabin in the edge of a small clearing. For a moment he hesitated. Then he took Isabel in his arms and went to the door. 
It was slightly ajar, and after knocking upon it with his fist he thrust it open and entered. There was no one in the room in which he found himself, but there was a stove and a fire. At the end of the room was a second door, and it opened slowly. In another moment Isabel stood there. He had never seen her as he saw her now, with the light from a window falling upon her. She was dressed in a loose gown, and her long hair fell in disheveled profusion over her shoulders and bosom. McVeigh would have cried out her name, he had told himself a hundred times what he would first say to her, but what he saw in her face startled him and held him silent while their eyes met. Her cheeks were flushed. Her lips burned an unnatural red. Her eyes were glowing with strange fires. She looked at him first, and her hands clutched at her bosom, crumpling the masses of her lustrous hair. Not until she had looked into his eyes did she recognize what he carried in his arms. When he held the child out to her, she sprang forward with the strangest cry he had ever heard. "'My baby!' she almost shrieked. "'My baby! My baby!' She staggered back and sank into a chair near a table, with little Isabel clasped to her breast. For a time Billy heard only those words in her dry, sobbing voice as she crushed her burning face down against her child's. He knew that she was sick, that it was fever which had sent the hot flush into her cheeks. He gulped hard and went near to her. Trembling, he put out a hand and touched her. She looked up. A bit of that old, glorious light leaped into her eyes, the light which he had seen when in gratitude she had given him her lips to kiss. "'You?' she whispered. "'You brought her?' She caught his hand, and the soft smother of her loose hair fell over it. He could feel the quick rise and fall of her bosom. "'Yes,' he said. There was a demand in her face, her eyes, her parted lips. He went on, her hand clasping his tighter, until he could feel the swift beating of her heart. He had never thought that he could tell her the story in as few words as he told it now, with more and more of the glorious light creeping into Isabel's eyes. She stopped breathing when he told her of the fight in the cabin and the death of the man who had stolen little Isabel. A hundred words more brought him to the edge of the forest. He stopped there. But she still questioned him in silence. She drew him down nearer until he could feel her breath. There was something terrible in the demand of her eyes. He tried to find words to say, but something rose up in his throat and choked him. She saw his effort. "'Go on,' she said softly. "'And then I brought her to you,' he said. "'You met him?' Her question was so sudden that it startled him, and in an instant he had betrayed himself. Little Isabel slipped to the floor, and Isabel stood up. She came near to him as she came that marvelous night out on the barren, and in her eyes there was the same prayer as she put her two hands up to him and looked straight into his face. He thought it would be easier, 
but it was terrible. She did not move. No sound came from her tight-drawn lips as he told her of the meeting with Dean and of her husband's illness. She guessed what was coming before he had spoken it. At his words, telling of death, she drew away from him slowly. She did not cry out. Her only evidence that she had heard and understood was the low moan that fell from her lips. She covered her face with her hands and stood for a moment an arm's length away, and in that moment all the force of his great love for her swept upon MacVeigh in an overwhelming flood. He opened his arms, longing to gather her into them and comfort her as he would have comforted a little child. In that love he would willingly have dropped dead at her feet if he could have given back to her the man she had lost. She raised her head in time to see his outstretched arms. She saw the love and the pleading in his face, and into her own eyes there leaped the fire of a tigress. "'You! You!' she cried. "'It was you who killed him. He had done no wrong, save to protect me and avenge me from the insult of a brute. He had done no wrong. But the law, your law, set you after him, and you hunted him like a beast. You drove him from our home, from me and the baby. You hunted him until he died up there, alone. You, you killed him. With a sudden cry she turned and caught up little Isabel and ran toward the other door. And as she disappeared into the room from which she had first appeared, Billy heard her moaning those terrible words, You! 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 Like a man who had been struck a blow, he swayed back to the outer door. Near his dogs and sledge he met Pierre Couchet and his half-French wife coming in from their trap-line. He scarcely knew what explanation he gave to the half-breed who helped him to put up his tent. But when the latter left to follow his wife into the cabin, he said, "'She is sick, very sick, and she grow more sick each day until, mon Dieu, my wife, she is scared.' He cut a few balsam boughs and spread out his blankets, but did not trouble to build a fire. When the half-breed returned to say that supper was waiting, he told him that he was not hungry and that he was going to sleep. He doubled himself up under his blankets, silent and staring, even neglecting to feed the dogs. He was awake when the stars appeared. He was awake when the moon rose. He was still awake when the light went out in Pierre Couchet's cabin. The snowman was gone from his vision, home and hope. He had never been hurt as he was hurt now. He was yet awake when the moon passed far over his head, sank behind the wilderness to the west, and blackness came. Toward dawn he fell into an uneasy slumber, and from that sleep he was awakened by Pierre Couchet's voice. When he opened his eyes it was day, and the half-breed stood at the opening of the tent. His face was filled with horror. His voice was almost a scream when he saw that MacVeigh was awake and sitting up. "'The great God in heaven!' he cried. "'It is the plague, monsieur, 
Le Mort Rouge, the smallpox. She is dying. McVeigh was on his feet, gripping him by the arms. He turned and ran toward the cabin, and Billy saw that the half-breed's team was harnessed and that Pierre's wife was bringing forth blankets and bundles. He did not wait to question them, but hurried into the plague-stricken cabin. From the woman's room came a low moaning, and he rushed in and fell upon his knees at her side. Her face was flushed with the fever, half-hidden in the disheveled masses of her hair. She recognized him, and her dark eyes burned madly. "'Take the baby,' she panted. "'My God, go, go with her!' Tenderly he put out a hand and stroked back her hair from her face. "'You are sick, sick with the bad fever,' he said gently. "'Yes, yes, it is that. I did not think, until last night, what it might be. You, you love me. Then take her.' Take the baby and go, go, go. All his old strength came back to him now. He felt no fear. He smiled down into her face, and the silken touch of her hair set his heart leaping and the love into his eyes. I will take her out there, he said. But she is all right, Isabel. He spoke her name almost pleadingly. She is all right. She will not take the fever. He picked up the child and carried her out into the larger room. Pierre and his wife were at the door. They were dressed for travel, as he had seen them come in off the trap line the evening before. He dropped Isabel and sprang in front of them. What do you mean? he demanded. You are not going away. You cannot go. He turned almost fiercely upon the woman. "'She will die if you do not stay and care for her. You shall not run away.' "'It is the plague,' said Pierre. "'It is death to remain.' "'You shall stay,' said McVeigh, still speaking to Pierre's wife. "'You are the one woman, the only woman, within a hundred miles. She will die without you.' You shall stay if I have to tie you. With the quickness of a cat, Pierre raised the butt of the heavy dog whip which he held in his hand, and it came down with a sickening thud on Billy's head. As he staggered into the middle of the cabin floor, groping blindly for a moment before he fell, he heard a strange, terrified cry, and in the open inner door he saw the white-robed figure of Isabel Dean. Then he sank down into a pit of blackness. It was Isabel's face that he first saw when he came out of that black pit. He knew that it was her voice calling to him before he had opened his eyes. He felt the touch of her hands, and when he looked up, her loose, soft hair swept his breast. His head was bolstered up, and so he could look straight into her face. It frightened him. He knew now what she had been saying to him as he lay there upon the floor. "'You must get up. You must go,' he heard her mooning. "'You must take my baby away. And you, you must go.' He pulled himself half-erect, then rose to his feet, swaying a little. 
he came to her then with the look in his face that she had first seen out on the barren when he had told her that he was going with her through the forest. "'No, I am not going away,' he said firmly, and yet with that same old gentleness in his voice. "'If you go, I will die. So I am going to stay.' She stared at him speechless. "'You, you can't,' she gasped at last. "'Don't you see? Don't you understand? I'm a woman, and you can't. You must take her, my baby, and go for help.' "'There is no help,' said McVeigh quietly. "'Within a few hours you will be helpless. I am going to stay, and—and and I swear to God I will care for you, as he would have done. He made me promise that, to care for you to stick by you." She looked straight into his eyes. He saw the twitching of her throat, the quiver of her lips. In another moment she would have fallen if he had not put a supporting arm about her. "'If anything happens,' she gasped brokenly, "'you will take care of her, my baby?' "'Yes, always.' "'And if I get well?' Her head swayed dizzily and dropped to his breast. "'If I get well?' "'Yes,' he urged. "'Yes.' "'If I—' He saw her struggle and fail. "'Yes, I know. I understand,' he cried quickly as she grew heavier in his arms. "'If you get well, I will go. I swear to do that. I will go away.' No one will ever know, no one in the whole world. And I will be good to you and care for you." He stopped, brushed back her hair, and looked into her face. Then he carried her into the inner room, and when he came out little Isabel was crying. "'You poor little kid!' he cried and caught her up in his arms. "'You poor little—' The child smiled at him through her tears, and Billy suddenly sat down on the edge of the table. "'You've been a little brick from the beginning, and you're going to keep it up, little one,' he said, taking her pretty face between his two big hands. "'You've got to be good, for we're going to have a—a—' He turned away and finished under his breath. "'We're going to have a devil of a time.' End of chapter 15 Recording by Roger Moline